Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Erin Graham to tell us all about her book published by Oxford University Press titled Transforming International Institutions, How Money Quietly Sidelined Multilateralism at the United Nations. This book I found really helpful for understanding very much where we're currently at with the United Nations, which often does have a bit of a gap between what we might officially know of how it's meant to work versus what we see happening, and also explains how we got to this point. Um, So this book is incredibly useful on a number of both practical and theoretical levels. So Aaron, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast to tell us all about it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And thanks for those kind words about the book. Very glad to have you. Could we start off, please, with a bit of an introduction of yourself and explain to us why you decided to write this book? Sure. Uh, well, I'm a political scientist uh, with a focus on international relations. And within that field, I specialize in the study of international organizations and international rules. Um, so the UN is right in my wheelhouse. Um, and I've been especially re- interested in questions related to institutional design, how organizations develop over time, and also their financing. So this book brings all three of those things together. The initial idea for the book, or my initial interest, I should say, in financing came from uh, my dissertation project some time ago. And it was really just a tangential observation. One of the cases was the World Health Organization. Uh, And one of the things you learn very quickly about the the WHO is that it's highly reliant on voluntary contributions. And, you know, in the wake of COVID, this has gotten some attention. But at the time, uh, 10 years ago or so, it was it was more under the radar. And not only is the the money, about 80 percent of that money that goes to the World Health Organization, is it voluntary, but it's also something called earmarked and what earmarked means is that um, the money coming in from different contributors, which could be countries or could be private actors, doesn't just go into a single pot um, and then get distributed according to the priorities of the organization. Rather, the, the, the contributor, the donor, is often placing quite a strict earmark um, on how that money will be used by the organization. And what struck me as a student of international organizations, what struck me as really interesting about that is that it's it's not how we think about international organizations making decisions. You know, they're they're very much associated with almost synonymous with multilateralism. Um, but in the case of the WHO, it seemed that for the vast majority of the funds moving through the system, resource allocation wasn't being done primarily by the, the multilateral bodies. And instead it was being done on kind of an individual basis with donors uh, in, in consultation with the WHO bureaucracy. Uh, and then I sort of looked over to the broader UN system and found that while the WHO is a pretty extreme case of this, actually the whole system is characterized by this trend. Um, and I thought, gosh, you know, this really isn't multilateral governance in the way that we think about it. Uh, maybe it's sort of a hub and spoke model where you have uh, the, the bureaucracy of these UN agencies at the center, and then you have these different spokes coming out with individual donors. Um, but it's not, you know, a group of states sitting around the table 
deciding priorities and then allocating uh, resources that way. And so that just struck me as, as, as interesting because I think both in kind of the, the popular conception um, when we think about the United Nations or even, again, as, as somebody who studies IOs and specializes, gets a PhD uh, studying this stuff, you don't necessarily think about the UN system that way. Um, and so I, w- I was curious about how, how, how this was, that we have this mismatch in our conception and then how it's actually operating. Yeah, no, and that's exactly what drew me to this book um, of, ooh, okay, this is something that we sometimes notice, but to properly investigate and explain where it comes from is, as I said, right, really helpful. So can you take us through the process of going from noticing these aspects to developing the key questions for the book? Can you walk us through what they are and how you came up with them? Sure. I guess the the, the first question is is sort of how did it begin, right? If, if we look back to the origins of these institutions, and of course, when I say the UN development system here, which is what the book is about, some of those institutions are much newer, you know, so the, the UN development program is, comes in in 1966, and uh, the UN environment program comes in in the 70s. But the book starts with the origins of, of the UN. So we're, we're looking at the, you know, during World War II, and uh, we're looking at the United Nations Charter. And so you, if you go back and look at that, you'll see that there's just, there's one rule in the United Nations Charter that pertains to how the system should be funded. Uh, and it's a mandatory funding rule. It says, you know, the expenses of the organization shall be paid by the member states, something I'm paraphrasing. Um, and so, so one question is, okay, how did we get from this one or two lines that says the member states are going to pay mandatory dues to the United Nations to pay for it to the contemporary period that I just described where the vast majority of the money is voluntary and the vast majority of the money is being earmarked by donors. Um, And so part of it was, part of developing the questions was kind of figuring out these different points in time where empirical changes happen. So, So if we could move, for instance, from that early period where we just have a mandatory funding system, um, figuring out, okay, so here's where we added a voluntary piece to the system, but those voluntary pieces actually prohibited this practice of earmarking. So when did we get to uh, allowing earmarks? And once you can kind of plot those points along the timeline of the United Nations, then you can start investigating when, you know, how those changes actually occurred. Um, so that was that was part of it. Um, another, I guess another question or another aspect that we just alluded to in talking about kind of the mismatch between conceptions and reality at the UN um, is that I was I was especially intrigued by this this question of uh, it almost seemed like we didn't people didn't notice this change was happening until it was really far along in the process you know so there aren't actually um, uh, th- there's not a lot of concern about this in the UN system until you know well into the 2000s um, but it's a process that started in the 60s and so part of the the way I thought about the questions for the book is not just how did this change happen, but how did this change seem to happen without anyone noticing <laughs> or with just a few people noticing? Um, so those were, the, I guess those are maybe the two big questions that, that drive the book. Thank you for walking us through those. Um, I, I mean, they're great questions, right? So of course, like if anyone gave me those questions, it's like, yeah, of course we need to investigate that. So thank you for setting um, us up with that kind of foundation. And similarly, before we get into answering them, uh, to finish off, I suppose, this contextual bit, can you tell us about some of the assumptions that the book is resting on? Sure. So uh, again, I'm, a, I'm an international relations scholar, and there's a really dominant way of thinking about how institutions are designed and changed uh, in, in the IR scholarship. Um, and it's a rationalist approach to design and change. And um, sometimes the, the rationalist approach, I think, is so well accepted that we don't think a lot about the assumptions that underlie it. Um, but one of the assumptions that underlies a rationalist approach is that if we think about the people who are actually designing international institutions and the rules, um, we, we assume that they operate in a world of risk. Uh, and what that means is that they're, they're forward looking in their approach, right? They're trying to anticipate 
the future uh, and figure out like what are the potential problems that we need to be concerned about moving forward. And then we're going to design rules such that we can proactively anticipate uh, and deal with these potential problems. In a way, that's why they're designing the institution. You know, that's that's why we have a United Nations, right? The, um, they really wanted to design a collective security system to prevent another world war. Um, and so that's what you're trying to anticipate, like, what's the future going to be? And I'm going to design rules to, to deal with that future. Um, you know, when you start reading archives, you realize the, the limits on... Uh, designer's ability to anticipate the future. And I mean, one thing that I think we should all think about when we're studying these uh, post-war institutions that have been around now for a long time is that you know, they're really old. And so <laughs> if, we, um, if we want to have an assumption that uh, people could anticipate you know, what the world was going to look like and that the rules that they were designing at the time are meant to accommodate this world, like it's getting harder and harder to maintain an assumption like that. So one of the things uh, I do in the book is is say that we really need to take genuine uncertainty seriously when we think about explaining the design of rules. Um, because if you look at the UN case, you see that things that happen relatively quickly in the UN um, in the UN history, so five, ten years uh, after they designed the charter, um, weren't anticipated by the designers. And it wasn't because they weren't trying to anticipate them. It's just like they, they can't see things coming. Um, and so rather than have an assumption of um, that we live in a risk world where we can assign probabilities to future states of the world and uh, select among them, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but we know the possibilities. <coughs> Excuse me. This book assumes that designers also have uh, genuine uncertainty, um, that they're unable to design rules to accommodate because they don't know what the future is going to be, some of those outcomes. So that's one, uh, genuine uncertainty. Um, the second one is that a rationalist approach tends to treat rules primarily as constraints, um, and surely rules are constraints. Um, and so if we think about designing an international treaty, we think, sure, of course, the rules are trying to constrain state behavior. Um, but again, if we look at long histories of institutions over time, we often see that actors find interesting ways to use rules that were intended for something else for new purposes. Um, and so this book and this approach, uh, following kind of a historical institutionalist approach um, that comes primarily out of uh, comparative and American political development literatures, um, really takes seriously that rules are enabling, you know, rules are tools, rules can be used for things that they weren't, intent, weren't intended. And you can kind of see how that genuine uncertainty assumption and using a rule in the future for something that wasn't intended by the designer kind of goes together. Um, likewise, when we study international institutions in IR from a rationalist perspective, and there are different ways to do this now. I mean, people have gotten more sophisticated. The basic idea would be that um, you know, a rationalist, uh, an institutional designer or someone that's trying to negotiate change would just respond to their incentive environment, right? And we can predict what they're going to do based on the choices available to them. Um, we might put in a little bit of uh, cognitive bias or something. You know, perhaps we would imagine um, a, a designer being not perfectly rational because they're biased toward certain sorts of solutions and away from others. Um, this approach that I use really treats uh, kind of agency, actor agency, as a really important part of the process, but I don't see actors as um, very proactive and making choices from a choice set that exists in front of them. Rather, they're really creative in response to unanticipated opportunities and constraints. Um, and so they're often acting creatively in ways that are difficult to anticipate rather than just kind of reacting to a, a clear set of incentives and choice set as we often think about in a rationalist approach. So the three big, from a theoretical perspective, the three assumptions that underlie uh, the argument are this um, creative agency rather than uh, kind of machine-like uh, selectors. <laughs> um, uh, rules are permissive rather than just constraints. And then we have to take genuine uncertainty seriously. Hmm. 
thank you for going through those. Um, and in a lot of ways, I think they they give us threads to pull on as we continue our discussion. Um, so I want to ask about one of the things you've mentioned kind of in particular to start off with, the idea that the rules as written in the charter were in many ways kind of quickly out of date and therefore there were lots of responses to them. Why wasn't one of the responses to rewrite the rules or change the rules? Why wasn't that the evolutionary mechanism? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So the charter is very hard to reform. So the UN sets a really high bar for, there, there is a way to amend the charter and it has been amended, but it was last amended in 1973, I think, which sort of suggests that it, it's rather difficult. Um, and so so if we think about the funding rule, I mentioned, uh, I think it's Article 17 of the UN Charter has this rule about UN funding that says the expenses of the organization are to be paid by the members. It's telling that when they designed the UN, I mean, I looked as hard as I could to get a sense of the conversations that were happening around funding, and it just wasn't something that they were especially concerned about. So if you look at the the United Kingdom and the United States and Soviet Union, this wasn't something that they spent a lot of time discussing. And they spent a lot of time discussing sort of small things, right? Um, But they, they didn't see funding as particularly important. And they didn't see it as particularly important, you kind of come to understand, because they didn't anticipate something like peacekeeping falling under mandatory funding. They didn't really anticipate that the UN would have a development system in the way that it does, right? And so they didn't envision the costs of this being particularly high. And so if we think about how they might have changed the charter rules, the other thing that we have to think about at the United Nations is how the membership changes, right? And so by the time of, you know, even as we get into the 1950s, we can see that the UN is going to be quite a bit larger. You move from you know, just over 50 member states in the initial UN. By 1960, you have over 100. But by the 1950s, you can sort of see that the membership is changing. Um, to change the rules of the charter, to, to amend that, you would have had to have, you know, strange bedfellows on board together. <laughs> um, and so kind of a growing developing country membership, a Soviet Union at the time that was really strongly opposed in the initial years of the UN to including anything under that mandatory assessment system, um, you know, much more so than the United States at the time. Um, you know, just the, I think legislating any revision to charter rules was probably impossible uh, even early on. Hmm. Okay, so we've got the kind of obvious mechanism ruled out in a lot of ways. Can you walk us through then what were the ways that institutional transformation was possible and why you use such an evocative phrase to describe them, calling them subterranean? Yeah, okay, sure. So uh, I think that we're... The mechanisms that I use in the, if I set, when I set them up in the, at the theory section of the book, are mechanisms that come from uh, historical institutionalist thinking. Uh, and so, um, in the in their generic form, I don't do anything new in terms of identifying those mechanisms. So those come from a literature, and one of the mechanisms is conversion. So that's using a rule for some new purpose, right? Converting its purpose. Uh, and the other mechanism, the general mechanism that I use is layering, which is rather than changing a rule because it's hard to change like uh, Article 17 that I just mentioned, you sort of introduce new things alongside that old rule. Um, And often there's kind of a subterranean aspect of change there to get to the language that usually when you introduce a new rule and you can't change the other one, right? It's it's sort of an incremental step. Um, It's not seen as something that directly undermines the, the status quo. Um, and so because of that, you get, you can sometimes get change processes over time um, that weren't intended. So it's a, in a way, it goes back to this intentionality thing. But I can put some meat on the bones in terms of um, what happens in the context of the United Nations. So one of the things that makes these transitions subterranean, um, to use that term, is that they're promoted as ways to expand the UN's work 
And they're promoted by states that are quite friendly and have what I call a pro-United Nations orientation. And so if we think of this end point of transformation that occurs in, in, in the 21st century, the changes to funding rules that were made um, in, say, the, the late 1940s, when we add voluntary funding rules for um, a new technical assistance program at the United Nations, you know, certainly the intent behind those additions was not to undermine UN multilateralism. If anything, we can think of those that change as something that was made to, to promote the United Nations and enable it to act in more areas um, without really upsetting uh, um, important members of the institution by incorporating those same activities under the mandatory regime. And so, you know, it would have been impossible at the time to suggest, I think, that this was something that was going to be bad for UN governance in the long run. Um, And so there's not intention out that the intention behind these changes is usually rather uh, to to overcome political disagreement and sort of allow the UN to go about its work. and really, the intention doesn't have anything to do uh, until until quite late in the process with kind of trying to undermine the governing bodies inside the UN. Um, and so at different points in time when these key changes occur, we can see that that's not the intent behind those changes. And that's part of why it's kind of a subterranean process and people don't really realize, people don't see the long-term effects um, of what the changes would be. Hmm. That that makes a lot of sense. Um can we get into, as you said, sort of the, the some of the meat of this and apply these concepts um, to the kind of UN rules itself? Because one aspect you talk about is the sort of, well, there is the rule on paper, but there's ways of interpreting that. There's ways of layering on top of it. What do the actual rules say? But I guess more importantly, what what are they taken to actually mean? Yeah, that's a that's another great question. And so the official rules of the UN Charter is this rule that I've mentioned, and it, it, it really is just that, you know, it just says that the expenses of the organization, it doesn't define those expenses, um, shall be paid by the member states. And then once the UN gets going, they decide on uh, allocating these assessments or these dues to the United Nations based on something called the capacity to pay formula, um, where wealthy states pay more, poor states pay less, um, adjusted over time with a ceiling and a floor. So those are the official rules regarding the mandatory assessment system. Now, you know, if, if we were to jump ahead a couple of decades and then a couple decades more, we can see ways in which the uh, illegal arguments made about that language, you know, disagree. There's multiple legal arguments about what expenses of the organization may or may not cover. And uh, particularly late in the story of transformation, interpretations of Article 17 that are forwarded by uh, the U.S. government during the the Reagan administration are quite useful to those who want to hold down kind of the mandatory portions of United Nations funding. Okay, Um, and so the interpretation of of Article 17 is kind of an interesting story in and of itself. It's it's in the background in different parts of the book, Um, uh, but there's there's quite an interesting evolution in its interpretation over time. But it remains static on the page. And if we want to talk about layering, the layering part of the story, uh, what I mean by that is that we keep the UN Charter rule, Article 17. There's always a mandatory portion of the United Nations budget. There was then, there is now. But alongside that rule, what we get are the financial rules of additional development funds as they're added. And so the first fund like that at the United Nations, or I I don't know if I should say first, but the the first one I consider in the book is called the Expanded Program on Technical Assistance. Um, There had been a small regular technical assistance program within the UN regular budget. The Soviet Union said it was illegal. They were against it. When they wanted to expand that program, they took it outside of the regular budget. So this, again, enabled the United Nations to do more. And so we have this voluntary funding system sort of layered alongside the initial 
mandatory system. Now, to my point about a subterranean process, again, this was not seen as a challenge to the mandatory system. It was seen really as a supplement to the mandatory system. And in fact, in the case of technical assistance, it was supporting the same sort of activities that were funded in the, in the mandatory system. Um, and so it was very much supported by states that wanted the UN to be able to act out more in the world, right? Um, and so it was seen as, 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 as supporting that. So that's, the, that's an important layering piece. Now, when we get to the another a conversion piece, we can tell sort of a conversion story over time about Article 17 if we want to and changes in its interpretation. Um, but the other really important piece of conversion in the story comes later. Um, and I don't know if we want to jump ahead yet, but there's these permissive earmark rules come into the United Nations system for a particular reason, again, to really supplement UN activities. And they end up being very cleverly repurposed um, from a normative perspective. You know, in my view, it's not great, but very cleverly repurposed uh, to sort of constrain um, multilateral bodies. So that's how the processes of layering and conversion kind of map onto these moments over time in UN funding history. Hmm. Thank you for taking us through that. And we will definitely talk more about earmarks because I think there's more to say uh, there. But before we get to that, are there any other sort of changes um, that we need to know about from the sort of, let's say, founding to like early mid 60s? Any other things we need to know about in that period that help us understand this shift away from kind of the original goals of the thing? Yeah, so I think the key the key ones that I focus on in the book are this this expanded program on technical assistance that I just mentioned. So that brings the that's the introduction of voluntary rules in the system. There's a second fund added uh, later on in the '50s. It's called the Special Fund for United Nations Development that similarly relies on voluntary funding rules. Um, and so those two programs, that kind of sets a precedent within the UN proper for how we're going to fund um, you know, social and economic development programs. And so those are, I think, a really important precedent for we're not going to do this primarily under the mandatory system. And I think by the time you have those two programs up and running, you have this alternative track to funding uh, in the UN, um, which is you know, really important step on, in terms of getting us where we are today. Those two programs that I just mentioned, the EPTA, the Expanded Program on Technical Assistance and the Special Fund, those are the two, two programs that together uh, become the UN Development Program. So, um, uh, you know, that ends up being a pretty important institution in the context of the United Nations. Hmm. Um, from, from there, you know, there's this uh, place in the book where I talk a little bit about um, those programs prohibited these earmarks. And so while the, the money was voluntary, and in some ways, you know, having voluntary money already empowers donors because they don't have to provide uh, the, the, the finance, right? And so if they don't like what the multilateral body's priorities are, they can say, well, I'm not going to play ball, right? I'm... Um, I'm not going to contribute. And so in some ways that already kind of undermines the spirit of multilateralism that you would have under a mandatory system where you provide the money regardless. Um, of course, this is assuming, you know, relatively high levels of compliance, which at the time we, we had uh, at the UN. Um, <coughs> we see some kind of early instances where the U.S., as, as the Cold War gets going, you know, the, the Soviet Union starts participating a bit more in the U.N. development system. Initially, they don't provide any funds. They start participating a bit more. Um, and they do some things to try to uh, kind of earmark uh, um, without breaking the rules. And w one of the ways that they do that is they they contribute their money to the special fund in EPTA in, in rubles that can't be converted. Um, and so, um, in other words, if they, they provide rubles and then EPTA has to basically buy or the special fund has to 
pay the Soviet Union in rubles for, say, equipment that's going to be used for some development project elsewhere. Um, and when you do it that way, of course, the Soviet Union can say, like, yes or no, <laughs> in terms of whether or not um, they want to sort of support the project. And so sometimes they would say, oh, you know, we don't have that kind of equipment. And in practice, what that meant was like, well, we don't want to support you know, any project in that country. Right. And so they kind of find ways uh, by virtue of providing a particular type of currency such that the, the funding isn't really uh, multilateral. They're beginning to pick and choose what programs they support. And this did draw quite a bit of attention at the UN and a really big backlash from other major donors, the United States, but not just the United States. Um, so there were some interesting things going on behind the scenes. And, and again, as the Cold War kind of kicks up, we see that uh, the U.S., for instance, is very um, politically unpalatable to support projects in Cuba. And so you see the U.S. do a lot of foot dragging in the context of some U.N. agencies to try to prevent these programs from coming um, and getting positive votes and governing bodies. So you see both of the great powers sort of attempting to maybe manipulate the multilateral system. But for the most part, you see it. Um, you see the, the U.N. agencies pushing back against that. And I think we don't see as much um, influence or uh, bilateral influence from the great powers as we might expect, or you know, we might we might kind of skeptically think of or cynically think of today. Mm, which is a very useful finding to kind of make sure we don't accidentally assume things um, without the record for it. So thank you for kind of clarifying that. Um, you talk about if we move a little bit later in the period to the later 1960s. You have this phrase, the creative cracks, which I think picks up on a bunch of points we've discussed so far. Um, do we want to move to this time period and talk about what happens here for multilateralism? Yes, this is, I mean, I, for me, this is the key period um, that sort of brings us up or makes possible where we are today. So I've mentioned that the UN system had these prohibitions on earmarks and um, you know, it really wasn't allowed uh, until well into the 1960s. And so how do these come into the UN development system? Um, what happens is that the UN development program, so UNDP that we still have today, is being established from these two agencies that I've mentioned to you. They're, they're going to come together and forge this new United Nations development program. Um, at the time in the politics of the UN, again, the, the Cold War context is important. There was a lot of talk and a lot of controversy around um, funding uh, industrial development um, at, at the UN, which was associated with uh, the Soviet Union and um, kind of state-led economies, uh, uh, funding the, the government getting involved in kind of heavy industry Um and uh, the United States, of course, this was not something they're interested in funding. Um, there were a number of countries that you can imagine taking kind of a middle ground on on some of these issues about the role of the economy, uh, the, sorry, the role of the state and the economy and, and whether or not funding these kind of industrial development activities would be fine. Um, and so as they're for, if they're, they're trying to establish the new UN development program, there's the Soviet Union keeps pitching how uh, this, uh, some of this money or some portion of the agenda here should be about funding industrial development. That's how you get development, right? And anything else is just sort of um, uh, going to help around, around the margins. And the United States saying, like, well, if, if, if we do that, we're not going to fund it, and we're the ones that fund it. Um, so in kind of a, getting around some of these issues, there, come, uh, there comes a, uh, an offer from uh, the Netherlands at the time. And uh, the Netherlands says, well, why don't we put forward a, um, a contribution and to the new UNDP, and we're going to offer it to the new executive director. And it's going to be for this kind of special industrial activities. <laughs> um, and this is it, you know, this would this is technically an illegal contribution, and so the head of the UN Development Program, the new head of the UN De uh, Development Program, goes to talk to the UN Office of Legal Affairs, and the UN Office of Legal Affairs says, "Yes, we can't accept anything that's earmarked to the program because we're going to have the same funding rules that EPTA and the Special Fund had." 
Um, but let us consult about, you know, if there's any ways that we can accept this contribution. Again, this is a contribution from a state that's a supporter of the United Nations, a state that's trying to be helpful in the context of, kind of Cold War politics that are often difficult for the UN to navigate. Um, and what accepting their contribution would do is sort of, kind of throw a bone to those who think um, that this should be something the UN is engaged in, but make it such that the United States doesn't have to fund any of it. And so it's, you know, their, their political qualms that, that doesn't pose a problem for them domestically. Um, and so uh, the Office of Legal Affairs comes back uh, to the UN Development Program and says, well, you know, the, the Secretary General has a financial rule on the books that allows the Secretary General to accept um, contributions for particular purposes. Now, the way this had been used at the UN in the past is... Um, you know, if the UN was going to take a contribution from, you know, a, a philanthropic uh, organization like the Rockefeller Foundation, you know, it would fund the building of a United Nations library or something, and that money would be provided for that purpose, and it would be provided to the Secretary General. Um, and so, basically, Legal Affairs said, "Why don't we do that in this case? Right, the Secretary General can accept the money um, and put it in a trust fund." to be used for the purposes that the Netherlands wants. The Netherlands makes the contribution. Um, we, you know, move forward on that basis. So at that time, uh, that's what they do. So uh, UNDP, the, the money is in a secretary general trust fund, but UNDP is able to use it in the way that uh, the Netherlands wants. Um, and the UNDP rules don't immediately shift. However, uh, you know, the next year at a meeting, and I think in the book I say very unceremoniously and without much discussion, in an extraordinarily technical document with financial rules, the UNDP basically uh, amends rules or adds a rule that allows them to have these same kind of trust funds that the, the Secretary General would have, but to do it in the context of UNDP, such that the Executive Director of UNDP would no longer have to check with legal affairs or go through the Secretary General, but rather they would just be able to open new trust funds for any donor that supplies a contribution. Um, and so that's the way in which, uh, again, the rather unceremonious way in which these rule, these funding rules come into the UNDP system. Um, I mean, what I say in the book is that you don't see uh, donors immediately taking advantage of these rules. Right? There, it's not like there was a, a huge pent-up demand uh, to earmark contributions to the UN at the time. Um, but rather, we, we do start to see a few uh, trust funds and trust funds or earmarked contributions come into the UN system. And they usually look like bilateral aid would. Um, so... On the, on, the, on the positive side about early earmarks, they were conceived of by these donors very much as supplemental to their regular contributions. So you don't see the Netherlands or Sweden providing fewer core contributions to the United Nations programs. Rather, they're providing additional contributions. They're just uh, the, the additional contribution is earmarked. So again, that's kind of a, the view that these are supplementing the UN system. From a more kind of skeptical perspective, what they look like is bilateral aid. And so um, you see states funding, say, the former colonies uh, through trust funds at UNDP. Um, you see uh, them maybe funding industries that their bilateral aid agencies are are wanting to prioritize. Um, you see, you know, a lot of a lot of you know, Australia funding things in their own region. Um, so they they're a supplement to the the core funding or the unearmarked funding at the UN, um, and they basically look like bilateral aid programs for the for the donors. Can we stay on that sort of skepticism point for a moment? What are the problems that this causes? Just to make sure we're kind of really not leaving that in the implicit side. What are the problems that this earmarks thing, like why does it matter if it looks like bilateral aid? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think early on, the problems were much less substantial than they are today, right? So because it was a, it was a small trend, whether it could even be called a trend early on is an open question. But so from a governance perspective, and I don't necessarily want to put a normative slant on this, mm -hmm. but it does change the, the decision making 
right? So when you think about how UNDP determines its priorities and its resource allocation for its unearmarked contributions, we have to think about United Nations governing bodies. And United Nations governing bodies are, uh, are, are special, right, in the international system. They're not like the international financial institutions that have weighted voting. UN agencies have one country, one vote. Um, we always think about that in the context of the General Assembly, but all of these other UN programs like UNDP or like UNEP or like UNICEF or the World Food Program, they all have one country, one vote in their governing bodies, and they have at least as many developing states on their governing boards as, as they do developed states. Okay, So in those... Uh, in those governing, in those multilateral bodies, you know, in the book I call it egalitarian multilateralism. Outside the Security Council at the UN, we have egalitarian multilateralism in terms of representation and voting. Um, so that's you know not the favored system of wealthy states because uh, if they go over and give money through the World Bank, they have a much larger share of the vote and much more formal influence. They have informal influence too, but even the formal influence um, at the international financial institutions is much more. And so if you allow them to earmark their contributions, you're basically shifting the authority to allocate resources from these egalitarian bodies where developing states have a lot of representation to individual donors who now can just prioritize according to their own, the way we think of bilateral aid, according to their own geopolitical interests. Now, it doesn't mean that that's what they always do, right? Um, Some donors are, are, you know, whatever you want, enlightened, they're typically called in the literature. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, maybe their priorities are worthwhile. But what it does for sure is it changes that decision making. And in the UN, again, that's a, that's a, there's a real importance to that shift because what it means is that developing states have a have a significant formal influence over allocation in the multilateral side, and they don't if you take it out and let the donors do it on their own. Whereas if we're talking about an international financial institution like the bank, the donors already in the formal process have a lot of influence. And then, you know, if they're going to do trust funds and earmarks, they also have a lot of influence. But the shift is really significant at the United Nations. Okay, So that's that's one thing um, that I've written about a fair bit. A second bit is that, again, at this point, if we're talking about the late 60s, early 70s, even into the 1980s, there aren't so many trust funds, although it's very hard to track because the UN was not doing a great job keeping track of what was going on, right? Um, but but it wasn't it wasn't the majority of the money. It wasn't anywhere near close to the majority of the money. But once we shift up to you know into the '90s and the 2000s, it's a you know incredibly inefficient process to have hundreds of contracts with an individual donor to govern their funds to UN agencies. Uh, UN agencies have to have significant resource mobilization operations. Um, And so if we think about donors wanting efficiency from the system, which is something we often hear from the United, the United Nations has too much bureaucracy, it's too bloated. But actually, you know, the donors by virtue of the way that they contract with the UN to provide these earmark contributions is just creating a a huge burden on individual agencies to service hundreds of contracts. So I think from a governance perspective, there's a real issue. Um, And from an efficiency perspective, um, there's a real issue. Thank you for going through those. Um, I think sometimes those of us who study the UN kind of are like, well, obviously this has implications. And it's like, well, it's worth actually spending a moment outlining what they are. Um, So on that note as well, not just in terms of earmarks and kind of what that changes, and I I think the comparison to things like the bank is quite helpful. If we look at these changes kind of overall, the layering, the... um, changing the meaning, putting things together, the changes with the earmarks, what are the implications of this evolution over time if we're looking at things like institutional design, institutional change? Yeah, so I think, I mean, what I, what I would like the, what I hope that the book does is sort of make the case for when we think about institutional change 
make the case that we need to pay attention to changes that happen over time. When we study change in international relations, when we're looking at institutions, we often look for these big break moments that are easily visible, you know, that we can see them, we can identify, oh, here's where a big change occurred. Um, But in part because of something we started out with, treaties are really hard to change formally, right? So our standard way of thinking about change in IR is, well, if it's no longer solving the problem, right? If the treaty or the organization isn't, is no longer functioning the way the states want, then they need to get together and renegotiate change. But we can think of lots of examples, right? Whether it's like UNCLOS or the Law of the Sea Convention, or whether it's the Doha round at the WTO that never really did anything, or whether it's the UN Charter that hasn't been amended since 1973. It's really hard to negotiate formal change. And so I think that it's to assume that those are um, the most typical forms of change, I think is you know, that's an empirical question. Uh, and so by looking over time and identifying these moments that frankly don't look like big moments of change, but then tracing their effects afterwards um, and how they kind of add up over time and, you know, one leads to the next, although there's not intentionality behind that, right? It's an uncoordinated process. But it, tracing these histories uh, and the long-term effects of changes, I think, is something that we need to do more of if we want to get a better understanding of how these older international institutions have developed over time. And I think we can't do that if we say, well, I identify change by looking at, you know, major, major um, amendments or something, you know, a lot of times in the literature, amendments are the proxy for change. Um, and, and I'm not saying that's not a, a good measure of change. It's, um, it's fine, but it's really incomplete, I think is my would be my takeaway. And that um, we need in, in our in our research, we at least need to acknowledge that we're looking at kind of a small piece or an incomplete piece of the change picture. Um, and that what we need to do is not assume that we can tell when a change occurs, whether it's, it has kind of transformational potential or it's just kind of a small incremental change. Because I think a big takeaway of the book is that a change that looks incremental, a change that looks sort of technical, can have incredible, incredibly important effects. Um, but you can't see that until later, you know, um, and so mm-hmm. I think identifying important change is harder than we think. I think that's a great takeaway, especially for researchers. Um, on the theme of takeaways, I'm wondering if there's anything you hope readers take from the book in terms of with this knowledge from your book, looking differently or slightly differently at the UN system. Yeah, I mean, I I, I hope that people, um, you know, to the extent they're not aware of the, the funding and how, how, and how it works, I've, you know, I've been working on this topic for a while, and there's uh, a good deal of other great scholars who are, are working on kind of funding in international organizations now, which I think is great. Um, one thing that, you know, to kind of go back, I guess, with what I started with is that I think a lot of us haven't updated our conceptions of how international organizations function um, to reflect these really, I think, important changes in uh, that funding have had on on the governance of the institutions. And so um, if we take the UN system in particular, advocates of the United Nations, you know, people that, that like the system, uh, often emphasize it, this egalitarian nature of its governance, right? That they, they say, you know, it's one country, one voice, uh, one vote rather. Um, it's very inclusive, right? Developing states have, 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 have influence. Um, and I think for people of that persuasion, I would say, you know, be careful <laughs> because I think obviously from a rhetorical perspective, the UN absolutely does that. And the rhetorical piece is important. Um, but from a resource allocation perspective, there's a real question of whether developing countries have more influence than, say, they do at the IFIs. You know, I, I think that's something that people need to grapple with, UN advocates need to grapple with. On the other side of the equation, for uh, 
you know, here I am in the United States where the only UN funding you ever hear about is the regular budget and the peacekeeping budget. Why? It's because those are the mandatory ones where the US pays less than it ever has, but more than everybody else still in terms of percentage, right? Um, and so we, uh, you know, critics of the UN and the US often focus on that and complain that, you know, donors don't, we don't have enough influence like we should because there's not weighted voting at the UN. Um, and to them, I would say, well, but the vast majority of funding going through the UN system is voluntary. And, you know, you're earmarking most of your money. Um, the US is earmarking most of its, its voluntary money going through the UN system. So, of course, you have influence over it, right? So, so in other words, for both advocates and detractors of the UN, they tend to focus on this one country, one vote piece. Um, and I think if, if both step back and see, oh, that's not actually how resources are being allocated in the UN system, again, with some exceptions, right, with the, the peacekeeping and, and regular budget, then we need to update our, our conceptions and our complaints or our compliments about the UN system <laughs> and how it operates. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, there's definitely, I think, no matter where you stand on it, there are things you can update from with this. I've obviously taken up a decent chunk of your time, but before I let you go, um, is there anything you might be working on now that this book is done, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to preview or highlight for us? You know, I haven't started a new uh, book project. I'm kind of taking a step back. Um, I have some ideas on that front, but nothing I'd want to... to mention since I might not end up doing it. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm working on a, on a bunch of, I guess, related uh, projects, but mm-hmm. not um, anything that stems directly from the book. So I'm working on a new uh, paper now with a great research assistant here um, at the University of Notre Dame um, that looks at IO's engagement in climate finance, which is something I've done before. And in particular, looks at um, kind of the financialization of climate organizations where they're engaged in de-risking investments. And so rather than say, set the goal of, um, you know, a certain uh, carbon uh, mitigation goal for a project, the goal of the project is to mobilize private finance. And that's sort of the end of it. Um, And so we're investigating what organizations like some of the ones we just mentioned, like the UN Development Program, um, but also some of the, the climate agencies like the Green Climate Fund um, are are doing when they say they're de-risking investments, because we don't really have a sense. This is kind of a new terrain for international organizations, and we don't really have a sense of, of, of what they're up to. So it's kind of a mapping exercise, among other things. Um, and then probably most related to the to the book, I am working on a on a on a paper that has to do with how uh, Article 17 was uh, reinterpreted to cover peacekeeping, um, which yeah. is quite an interesting story that involves a uh, uh, very um, how, how to say I guess a lot of creativity on the part of <laughs> of justice uh, judgment at the time. Um, and so that was that was kind of an empirical piece that came out of the book that I didn't have time for a lot of it in the book. And so I decided to, to take that out. And so I'm enjoying grappling with how they managed to do that. And it's like theories of, of legal interpretation and things like that. Cool. All right. Well, thank you for sharing those with us. And of course, uh, as a reminder to listeners who want to get into all the details in the book, it is titled Transforming International Institutions, How Money Quietly Sidelined Multilateralism at the United Nations, published by Oxford University Press. Erin, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me.